I hope everybody's doing well this week. Um, let me pray before I get started. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and the good news of Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to be together as your, your people, to be together as your family so that we can worship through song, so that we can worship through reading your word, we can worship through the reading of your word. I'm a weak man in need of grace, a broken man before broken people. Father, I just ask that you would use me to be glorified this morning. I pray, Father, that you would protect me from shame if someone says that was a terrible sermon and I didn't understand what he was trying to say. Protect me from being puffed up if someone comes up to me and says, man, that's how you do it. Thank you. Calm my nerves. Protect me from wanting to be significant in the eyes of these brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move and work in the hearts of us as we're here together under your word. I just pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there a feedback coming off of this? I, I feel like I hear some of it. Try to move a little bit, see if that helps. Okay, so I am not rusty, obviously. And it's going to be very telling as I go through this that I'm not uh, as skilled, maybe, as Rusty is in doing this, um, but I'm going to do my best to honor the Father and point us to Jesus. So the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to continue to do so over the next couple or next few weeks, really. And the whole message that we want to understand for ourselves is to see how we're called to work towards rebuilding what is broken, just as Nehemiah and a lot of other people helped to do to the wall of the old city in the book of Nehemiah. And as I mentioned, Rusty, he, he asked me if I would preach or share something from Nehemiah 3. Um, and if I'm being honest, the first time I read Nehemiah 3, I was underwhelmed, or maybe overwhelmed. Um... And if I'm really being honest, it was really boring because it's a list of names. It's a bunch of landmarks. It's a bunch of, it's a list. What can you glean from a list, right? As I was preparing for this, I, uh, I, I listened to a sermon that Tim Keller preached on Nehemiah 3 and 4. And he said something that reminded me of how much I really have to go in my growth, how much further I have to go uh, in my growth as a follower of Jesus. And he said, we tend to look at these types of passages and we either ignore them, skip over them, or just we ignore the significance of these passages or lists that we see throughout Scripture. The reason for that is because we come to this book right here, the Bible, that's a human book, but also a divine book, a book that was written by people, but inspired by God. And we see that it's made of a, a, of a bunch of small stories and smaller books put together. 
But in reality, it's one big story. And all these smaller stories point to one person in the end, and that's Jesus. So yes, even in the mundane lists that we see in the Old Testament especially, but even in the New Testament, there are a few lists. There is beauty to find. There is glory to be seen because God did not put these in here for no reason. There is a reason that He put these here to eventually point us back to Him. And so with that said, I'm going to do my best to do that. And I'm sure if Rusty were here, he would knock it out of the park and we'd all leave here, go eat somewhere and say, man, how does he do that? You know, he's got so much ability and skill. And even I'm intimidated preaching this passage. But first of all, he picked the individualist to preach a passage about working as a team. And, and then he gives this text to a person that likes big, dramatic, and significant stories, and I get this. And so I can't deny that it's a little bit frustrating when I read this. But I do find comfort in knowing, that maybe this is for me, not for you, but I find comfort in knowing that the same Spirit that dwells in Rusty and has gifted him to preach in ways that none of us in here could probably ever do. As a matter of fact, none of you could do it because God's gifted us all in different ways. But that same Spirit that lives in Him lives in me and has gifted me in ways that God can be glorified. So let me read Nehemiah 3. Bear with me because there's a lot of big names and I'm a country boy from the middle of nowhere. And so I'm going to butcher a lot. And we were joking earlier, like I thought about just taking the Bible app and letting it read it to you. So it, you could blame it if it messed something up. But uh, Nehemiah 3, bear with me, it's really long, 32 verses, and here we go. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechur, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hesanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshazabel, <laughs> repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the sons of Besodiah, repaired the gates of Yeshona. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the, the Mar Maranathite. <laughs> Y'all can laugh with me. It's okay. Y'all can laugh at me. That's okay. The men of Gibeon of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahite, Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section, and the tower 
of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, and he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, Rechab, whichever one you prefer, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of <laughs> something, Col Jose, Col Jose. <laughs> we got a Col Jose here. Ruler of the district of the district of Mizpah repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it, covered it, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to, to a point opposite uh, the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahum, the, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah, next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimuth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of, of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of... Mas it's not Messiah, but it's... Maasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. And to the corner, Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king and the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok the son of Emmer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah again, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the mustard gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired i made it <laughs> so just a disclaimer i'm probably not going to be speaking for very very long um After reading this, it's, it's obvious that we all sit here and think, 
what in the world? How can we be pointed to Jesus through this? How can we glean any beauty or any uh, narrative here? What can we get out of this thing that, that can help us grow and point us to Jesus and, and somehow be good news to us? Well, that's what I hope to do. So in this particular passage, what is God saying to us? Maybe that's a, you know, we do this in Fight Club. The first question that we ask is, what is God saying to us? Well, in this particular passage, it looks like maybe he wants to show us that specifically here in chapter 3, that God's holy people were set apart by his covenant, obviously, a long time ago, and set out to do a holy task, particularly here, to glorify him. And just to remind us, the word holy doesn't mean good, right, or better than, right? It means set apart and unique. So God's people were set apart to do a unique to be a unique people to do a unique task many times, right? Throughout the Old Testament. And so what is it though that God is saying for you and me here? Maybe it's that you and I that are in Christ, as God's holy people have also been set apart to do a set-apart or a holy task or a holy work. To be a set-apart, unique people sent to accomplish a set-apart and unique mission to do the ministry of reconciliation, redemption, and restoration in the world. As we've read about and sang about this morning. So as we look at Nehemiah 3, it would be really, really, really easy for us to say, well, what, are, what is this about? It's about leadership principles and delegation and, and things like that. And, and part of that's true. It does show us a lot of those things. But I think that there's a better or a deeper or a more, uh, uh, a more precise answer as to why God allowed this to go into His Word. And hopefully uh, we will see that as we go through some of these verses. Okay, so if I'm in a preaching class, I'm probably walking out of this with an F because I don't have the perfect skeleton structure of a sermon or I'm not giving you three points to a better life or whatever. I'm just going to walk through this and we're going to talk about it and hopefully uh, leave here encouraged and challenged by what it is that we should do about it. So first, we do see in chapter 3 that leaders did step up and lead by example, right? I just said that this, the point of this chapter isn't about leadership principles, but we do see leadership uh, principles and leaders leading by example in this passage. This is what makes a leader, right? The person that rallies the troops, that doesn't just sit around and talk about it, but actually takes action. The person that rallies the troops and say, hey guys, there's an issue. Let's do something about it. Let's just not talk about it, but let's go out and get our hands dirty and do the work. And so these priests in verse 1 and, and all throughout the chapter wanted to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, right? So they actually got up, started doing the work themselves eagerly. And this in turn encouraged the rest of the people to jump in to do the work themselves. Just like Nehemiah uh, as Rusty preached the chapter 1 and 2, we see Nehemiah take a stand to actually be bold to say, hey, we, need to, to, we want to rebuild the wall. We want to do this. We want, and he, he risked his position uh, in society in order to uh, lead people into doing that. And so these priests took uh, inspiration from that to also do that same thing. And so as you read further... It doesn't take long to see that issues arise. People start causing a stir or causing problems. You see in verse 6, the people or the group, the Tekoites, they, they did some work, but there was a group among them that were called the nobles. Right? And they thought they were either too good to do the work or that they were, they were just too good to participate in this work for, for whatever reason. We don't really know. And we all know that as human beings, but especially in the church, that this happens almost every time we set out to do something. Every time we set out to, to, to work or to do a task, 
there are people that 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 want to cause a stir, right? They they want to push back, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we must be willing to listen to their concern if we're going to work together in unison. But also on the flip side of that, be willing to confront their arrogance if they're wrong, and work and grow towards unity together. Because it seems like that's the theme here in chapter 3 is it takes a team unified to accomplish the goal. So throughout all 32 verses, there is a wave of unity that begins with the leaders at the top that works through the social classes, the trades, whatever else you want to throw in there. Uh, You have men and women and sons and daughters working together side by side You have the ruling class, the working class, the blue collar, the white collar working side by side. You see the clergy, the laity doing the same work. You see men and women doing the same work. Basically, you see representatives from all of society participating in this task of rebuilding. You've seen goldsmiths. You've seen... Uh, governors, right? Kids, even. Uh, I don't know if they're necessarily kids, but it talks. It lists them as uh, Hello Hesh. Talks about his daughters helping. And so we see the need for leading by example. We see the call to come together to work in unison for a common goal. The people here, I think understood the gravity and the weight of the task at hand. They realized that the priests couldn't do it on their own, the, the clergy, so to speak, couldn't do it on their own, that the people, the laity couldn't do it on their own, and the government couldn't do it on their own. There needed to be a call to action uh, to all the people to come together, no matter their socioeconomic background, and work together for the glory of God. So again, we see the need for leading by example and we see the call to come together in unison to work for a common goal. We also see, as you read further, that the work that we're called to isn't always pretty. You look at verse 14. This one stood out to me more than any of them. And maybe it's because I feel like I could, I, I, I'm Malkaja sometimes in my, own, in my own line of work. But it says, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, or Rechab, however you say it, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And so you may think, why in the world, what, why did that stick out to you? Just, was it just because it talks about dung? Yes, it does. That's why that stuck out to, to me, okay? So don't laugh, I'm serious. Okay. If you notice, there are names sprinkled all over the other gates and section of walls that were being built that contributed to the work to complete the job. But for some reason, the Dung Gate, poor Malkijah is the only one listed here. And I know this may be total speculation. Uh, well, actually it is because we don't know. For all I know, there was 15,000 people that helped build the Dung Gate, and there were too many names to list. But if you've ever read a list in the Old Testament, you know they're not known for being concise or nondescript, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't need to know everybody in your line, uh, your bloodline. But God wants us to. And so whether there was a million people that helped out Malkijah or he did work by himself, the, the thing we do see here, that not every part of this wall that was being built was attractive or, or nice or clean because the dung gate was exactly what it sounds like. It's where all the waste, garbage, and other waste went out. And so we see that the work we're called to isn't always neat and clean and pristine. We're often sold a vision of Christianity in our culture as Americans mostly. 
probably even more of a Western society type thing, but that if you believe the gospel or if you believe this faith that we uh, give out that your life will be easier, or even more specifically, if you're part of our tribe of Christianity, we often romanticize what it looks like to live life on life, life on mission. We often see videos um, advertising or promoting or kind of sharing what it looks like to, to be a church of missional communities and, and things like that. And they may say, say things that, that sound real and authentic, like, it's not all about this. It's all, you know, sometimes life gets messy. And, and you kind of, it, it just sounds like it's just cliche now, right? But we're often sold and presented with a vision uh, that doesn't often meet the reality. We often forget that when we commit to live life on life and life on mission and life in community and all that stuff, these words and phrases that are important and meaningful that we often lose sight of when we commit to those things that we forget that the people that we're going to become family with have marriage problems. We forget often that we're, we have people in our family that have addiction problems. We often forget that we may have to bail somebody out of jail because they did something stupid. And we forget that uh, we forget that people struggle with narcissistic tendencies and and they, they struggle with greed or maybe they struggle with with pride. We forget that we'll have family members that that struggle with depression for years and have a hard time finding joy in life. And it's our call to, to come together to encourage one another so that we can continue on to advance the good news of Jesus. I think we too often forget that when we're called to this and we commit to this work that we're dealing with broken people, we're dealing with bored and burnout people that live in a fallen and broken world. And as cliche as it sounds, life on life gets really dirty. It's really messy. It's really hard. It's not fun. More often than not, it's dirty. More often than not, you're standing in the dung. And that's when we see people that watch videos and, and come to the church and, uh, or come to our gathering or family meals or whatever that, that for a few weeks are just like, yes, I, this is exactly what I wanted to do. This is, this is what... Uh, this is my desire. This, I'm passionate about being uh, a disciple that makes disciples and, and living life on mission and blah, blah, blah. This is when we see those people that are enthusiastic about this call, this, this thing that Jesus gives us. Hightail it to the hills. Because a lot of this, I think, myself included, I'm not... I'm not erasing myself from any of this. I'm preaching out of weakness here. Because I think many of us are like some of the people we see later in chapter 3. Actually, immediately after we read uh, uh, about Malchijah at the Dung Gate, rebuilding the Dung Gate, we see names and names of people working in places that would be more high profile or attractive. And I'm not saying that their motivation was to be seen. I don't know their motivation. I don't. We don't it doesn't tell us. It just says so and so worked here. But I think a lot of us are like those people and we want to go to the place that, that's, that's more presentable or at least more attractive or more seen or more visible 
I mean, you've got people working on the king's garden, the tombs of David. You've got this pool and that pool, the, the house of the mighty men. I want to build the house of the mighty men. You know, like that sounds really cool. Or the king's garden. How relaxing or beautiful does that sound? Like, oh, there's plants and probably just beautiful things that we can see that aren't just brick and mortar. And we're helping rebuild that. And my name's going to be attached to it. But again, Malchijah's name is attached to the dome gate. You can even read, I probably didn't focus on it when I read through it, but you can see that in chapter 3 that there were people that even stayed close to their own homes so that they could repair parts of the wall that only affected their immediate surrounding. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to approve your own immediate surroundings, but like many of us, have in, at some point in our life done something or went somewhere or did some type of holy thing just to, have to build our social media resume, to post a picture. Look at this mission trip I'm on. Oh, look at this, uh, this little impoverished child or whatever. And you may not even know your motivation for it, but... Somewhere deep down there might be some motivation that says, hey, look at me. When our desire is more about making an Instagrammable selfie or a social media post or whatever than making disciples, that's where we run into the problem. And like I said, I don't know the intention of the people that worked on the King's Garden there's nothing wrong with building the King's Garden. It needed to be rebuilt. But there was a whole lot more names surrounding that one than there was the Dome Gate. Because things are really messy in other parts of disciple making. And the, the, the reality is we must be willing to roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty with other people. Because as we know, as we're living right now, you can go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever other thing there is now. There's probably like 50 that I don't even know about. But you can go on these, these uh, social media uh, platforms and turn on your TV if people still do that anymore and watch the news. Um, you can see a lot of brokenness in our world, right? If we want to be honest, there's a lot of brokenness in us individually right now. And this is why we need to heed the call, all hands on deck. We need unity. Paul talks about the church as a body. You probably know where I'm going here, but, but Paul says that the, bo the, the body doesn't function the way it's supposed to or the way it's intended to if there's a missing part. My legs or my leg or my arm or my foot or whatever body part is gone, that part of my body is weaker than the other. And this may end up getting stronger because this one's weaker, but it's still not functioning the way that it was intended to. The body eventually may adapt, but it will be overwhelmed and weakened in other ways. It takes a lot of hands. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of patience, hard work, vision, leading, delegating to get where we want to go. And we need all the hands. We need all the, the arms, the legs, the feet, and fingers, and so on. So let us grow in unity towards that goal. And so after hearing about the Dome Gate, you may think there may be even some feelings of, of shame or guilt or frustration, anger, sadness. Maybe you're mad that I'm the only one getting my hands dirty. I'm the Malkaja. Or I'm the, I'm, I've never gotten my hands dirty and I feel bad about it. Or 
maybe you're sad that not as many people are getting their hands dirty. Maybe some of you feel happy because somebody's talking about doing the dirty work. Well, here's, here's the bad news is that we can all come together and talk about that stuff. We can all unify and say, all right, let's tackle this thing. But we're going to fail at it. Even if we come together and are unified in our efforts, just because we want to get something done, we're still going to fail somewhere along the way. We're still going to deconstruct or destroy the rebuilding we've started or somebody else has done or whatever. We're still going to put a brick in the wall the wrong way. We're still going to get mad because so-and-so doesn't set up the way so-and-so does and and this family meal doesn't do it the way that I think they should and, and this blah, blah, blah. We could throw scenario out after scenario Leaders are still going to miscommunicate things. Some of us are going to think we're too good to do this. Right now, we're looking at a, a, a church culture that is so divided over what's going on in America, it's almost, it is sickening to see it. Because we're scared of being labeled as this or labeled as that. Guess what? Jesus was not scared of being labeled. They called him the devil. We're still going to fail at this. Just like after they rebuilt the wall, things never were perfect after that. But to point us to something hopeful, we see in the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament one who has never failed us, one who has never failed to miscommunicate the truth, one who has never failed uh, at being motivated with the, the wrong intention. He's never did anything out of the wrong intention. He's never done anything with will and ill intent. We preach one who is the ultimate Nehemiah, the one who left a good place in order to come and do the, the mission that the Father told him to do. We preach one who is the ultimate priest that leads us in truth and grace. One who is the ultimate brother that lends his hand to help pull us out of the pit. We preach one who is a better king whose kingdom is not a wall of brick and mortar, but a wall of salvation. We preach one who just didn't get his hands dirty but actually came down and got elbow deep in our mess and pulled us out of that miry pit, as the psalmist says. One who came to dwell among us just so that His mission of reconciliation could be accomplished through His perfect life in your place, His undeserved death that you deserved in your place on a cross, bled and died, broken, beaten, and killed put in a grave, and victoriously rose to life so that you as well could have life. That's the ultimate Nehemiah. That's the ultimate one that we look to to find comfort, to find salvation, to find our, to find our leadership, to find all of the things that we look to in some of these stories and in some of these issues that we even deal with. The one that we look to to deal with those things to actually lead us through those things. Jesus is the one who went the distance. He built the whole wall. He is the one that brought us unity with the Father because He had perfect unity with the Father. 
And just like I said, he's the one like Nehemiah that had a great place to be, but instead set aside those things to come and rebuild what you and I broke. And so as his children, as his people, let us heed the call to action, the the call to rebuild what has been broken. Now, does that mean we build a wall? Does that mean we lock these doors, concrete them up, and we all just stay in here and find a, a rat hole in there to, if we have to go get food and, and do our life outside of here? No. It means that Jesus isn't calling us to build a wall around ourselves and separate ourselves from the world outside of us. He's calling us to partner with Him as His followers. He's calling us to partner with Him as His followers as He leads us to live a life of holiness. We are, guys, we are, a ch- we are the church. We are part of God's called out, set apart people. We are a special people in the eyes of God. So let us live a life of holiness to see reconciliation between every tribe, tongue, and redemption for those that are oppressed and outcast. To see restoration to His creation. For we are, as we're going to read in a minute, ambassadors of Christ. Meaning we are, we represent Jesus on this earth as we do justice, as we love kindness and walk humbly with Him. Just as Nehemiah and God called His people to be set apart, consecrated, dedicated to a certain task and live it out together, you and I have been called by our Father through Jesus to do the same thing. To be called out, set apart from this world to declare and display a good news message to those that are far off from Him. So let us do justice. Let us not be scared to do justice because as ambassadors of Jesus, we are called to also live out similar and the same things. To imitate Christ. The way He did justice for us, let us also do justice for others. Let us love kindness the way that God was kind to us through Jesus. Let us also be kind to those that we come in contact. Just as Jesus Himself humbly walk this earth with His Father and among us, let us also walk humbly with Him and with others. And like I said, maybe that was the most scattered and back and forth and unorganized outline of message that you've ever heard in your life. But let us be comforted by remembering that we are called to this. And we can't do this by ourselves. Rusty, and whoever else can't do this by themselves. Val, you can't do it by yourself. Jose, you can't do it by yourself. None of us can do this alone. Jack said it a couple weeks ago when he was talking about the the work that, that he was going to do in Mexico that this isn't a lone wolf Christianity that we want to to preach. Right? And he's right. We're not called the lone wolf Christianity. We're called to do this together. We need one another. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live out this work that we've been called to. So let us as God's people, as His children, as His ambassadors and representatives on this earth, be diligent and eager to lead, to do the dirty work, To not be scared of labels. Let's be faithful to Him and and the good news that, that we've come to know through Jesus. So let me pray. And we'll take communion. And then we'll be sent. Heavenly Father, our Father, 
who is in heaven. Make your name holy among us. Let us see you for who you are, set apart, glorious, holy, great. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we're living in a society, in a culture, in a world of great, great brokenness. Come heal us as we sing, by thy mercy, deliver us, O Lord. How long, O Lord, must we endure? How long, O Lord, must our brothers and sisters endure suffering at the hands of of your own people sometimes? Father, we pray that You give us what we need. You have given us what we need. But we pray, Father, that each day that we wake up to look to You to say, God, I need You to help me in order for me to leave my house to go to where I work, to go to where my school, or go to the coffee shop, or wherever, in order for me to live out as Your called out holy people. I need Your grace and mercy and power. Let us rely and depend on You with uh, relentlessly. Heavenly Father, help us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Father, I pray that we are kind, gracious, and merciful people for Your glory. Father, I pray that we leave this place today changed different than we came in. And I find comfort in knowing that that Noah preached for hundreds of years and no one ever was converted. I find comfort in some weird way in knowing that in knowing that. I, I find comfort in knowing that that Peter preached at Pentecost a very simple message where thousands were saved. I find comfort in knowing that the guy that many of us call the Prince of Preachers was converted in a small church where the pastor didn't even show up and some other guy stood up to preach a couple minutes very uh, unorganized and was converted. It's not my ability or skill. It's not our ability or skill that, that, that bring people to your family. It's the power of God, the, the good news of Jesus. It's the power of the Spirit drawing us to uh, the truth and awakening us in order to be born again. To be reconciled. And I pray, Father, that we would not rely in our own ability or our own skill, but we would rely on Your power. And that we would remind one another as we are unified in our effort to do that, that it is not up to us to save the the, the, the world, but it is up to us to rely on Your power that the world might be saved. It is only through You, Jesus, that that can be accomplished. So help us live out a ministry of reconciliation. We're divided. We may even, be, we may even have division in this very group of people here today over issues that Jesus was pretty clear about. We may have division in our families over 
people. I pray, Father, that You would bring us together to humble us and to say, we got, we got to come together and we've got to, to, to be able to at least talk about this in order to grow towards that unity. I pray, Father, that You would give us ears to listen, eyes to see and hearts to understand the truth of Your Word, but also to see other people where they're at. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be scared. That we wouldn't fear what man can do to us. All they can do at the most is take our lives. As radical as that may sound, it's the reality. The most anybody can do to us is take our lives. But you've given us new life. And so in reality, they don't even do that. But even if it cost us a friend... Let us stand on Your Word and Your Gospel. Let us be bold in, in our declaration and disp display of, of Your good news. That boldness only comes through the power of Your Spirit. I pray that we, we would go out at this place relying on Him. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, now we will take uh, the Lord's Supper and we ask that if, sorry, I'm, if I sound quiet like my throat's all scratchy now because um, of the Saharan dust storm, I guess, but uh, <laughs> um, we're coming to the table now to partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, however you label it. And uh, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, instead of taking the bread and the cup, we, we invite you to take Christ instead and repent belief and uh, talk to us about it if, if, if you have questions. But as a, uh, ask yourself, am I a follower of Jesus? So let's take a few minutes to, to think about, uh, am I unreconciled with a, follow, a fellow follower of Jesus in this place or even not here? Am I at peace with a sinful action or desire in my life? After we're done reflecting, we can share from here, what idols do I excuse me, need to bring to the table? What wounds, what lies do I maybe need to confess and, and be encouraged or uh, comforted with the good news with? And so let us reflect on these things and we will uh, get up and individually take a cup from the table. Um, so let us let us bow our heads and close our eyes and think about these things for a couple of minutes.